Well, one of the announcements that you saw in your program is uh, something called Reveal. And what we're going to do in January, we're going to encourage everyone to be a part of a spiritual survey called Reveal. And the word kind of describes what we want to figure out. We want to reveal what are the things that we are helping you to spiritually grow and what are those things that you would reveal that we're not helping you to spiritually grow. Because that's our greatest desire as a church, to help you spiritually grow. Whether you're at the early stages, just getting to know Jesus, or if you are uh, at a place in which there is maturity and you are faithfully following Him. And so in January, there'll be a 20 to 25 minute online survey that you can do at your own home. You don't have to do it here. And uh, you can do it on the internet and we'll get that information. And I'm really excited about this because this is going to help us kind of gear where God is calling us in the next season of the jar over the next few years. And so uh, you'll hear more about this in the days to come. Uh, but in January, how many of you are going to fill out Reveal? We know your names. Let's try that one more time. Are you going to fill out Reveal? Yes. Okay, we're all going to do that. But you have to wait till January, okay? Well, let's uh, have a word of prayer uh, before we start with our Christmas series. Let's pray. God, come to us right now and uh, speak to the place in our hearts where uh, we feel most disconnected from you and from the people in our lives. And God, would you use your servant to help us get behind the scenes of the Christmas story and to know exactly um, how we feel about you and that we would learn to know how to grow in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Christmas season has definitely arrived, hasn't it? I mean, decorations are everywhere. Christmas music is being played uh, in all the different stores. There are fruit cakes and cheese trays and cheese balls, you know, all over the different stores. And there are fist fights happening all over the place, right? There's a couple of pictures here I'd like you to look at. Uh, These are a few of the things that happened on Black Friday. People were killing each other at this store. And here you can see they're about ready to go over the top to uh, get that item. Now, anyone experience this on Black Friday? Anyone? No one? Well, you're good, because who would want to deal with that? But some of this craziness that goes on during the Christmas season has become deadly. I don't know how many of you read about the Walmart employee who was trampled to death. The day after Thanksgiving, a Walmart employee from Long Island, New York, was trampled to death when customers took the hinges off the doors, jumped over the barricades, and barreled over the workers to grab the sale item. Four people also were injured, including an eight-month pregnant woman. Now that's nuts, folks, don't you think? But that's part of the Christmas season. But beyond the assault and battery, and uh, you know, beyond murder by trample... This is really a great time of year. In fact, how many of you, by a sign of your hands, you enjoy the Christmas season? Raise your hands. Okay, almost all of us do. And I want to ask you the question, 
What do we love about the Christmas season? So why don't you guys answer real quick. What do you love about Christmas? Presents? Okay, what else? Family? What else? Food? Food, man. We're ready for that, aren't we? Anything else? Children? What else? Shopping? Yeah, shopping. We like the shopping, don't we? And uh, we and some of us all hate the shopping when we get to, you know, December 24th and we don't have anything for our spouse yet. Guys, it's coming, okay? So make sure that you get something, no matter what it is. But for me, what I've learned is that when it comes to the Christmas season, I have to consciously slow down. I've got to refocus my heart and my mind and my priorities. Or I will miss out on the real purpose for Christmas. I mean, I can't get so busy with all the Christmas things that we love that we just talked about. I mean, I can get so into those things that I can miss what Christmas is about. All the decorating, all the parties, all the food, all the fun, all that stuff. And all that gets moved to the front, and Jesus gets moved behind. You know, if I'm careful, this will happen in my life this year. Not any of you, I don't know, but for Chris Bunch, if I'm not careful, what will happen is Jesus will just become a part of the show rather than the subject of the show. Anyone else relate with that? How that can happen? How that can consume your life? So here's my goal this morning. I want to encourage you to take some time to get away from your Christmas to-do list. And I want you to turn your attention to Jesus. I want you to focus on Jesus and His birth. But I just don't want you to focus on the cuddly, wuddly, eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus, you know, that uh, Ricky Bobby talks about in Talladega Nights. I want us to get beyond that Jesus, and I want us to focus on the one that God sent to planet Earth. I mean, when it comes to the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, the Savior Jesus, what do you feel about Him? Now, you don't have to be real spiritual to do this. I mean, any of us can. If you've been to church millions of times, or this is your first Sunday uh, you know, to church in a very long time. Because the reality is, we can all do this because Jesus evokes feelings in our lives. Now, how many of you, just by a sign of uh, your hands, how many of you have ever seen a play, a show, or a TV special on the Christmas story? Just by a sign of your hands. Yeah, we've all seen them, and they'll be coming soon. You know, at the church that I pastored at before, we put on probably the worst Christmas play in the history of all Christmas plays. I played Joseph every single year. Had a beard, had a turban, had a uh, you know robe that went around me. And uh, baby Jesus was always this person. Anyone know what this is? In the 90s, baby, this was the doll to have. And baby Jesus became Cabbage Patch Doll. Uh, started in the 80s, but our people, because we lived out in the country, 
uh, we didn't get Cabbage Patch until more like the 90s. Now, I'll have emails. Don't send them. I live in the country, Chris, and I don't appreciate why you just don't send them. Get over it, you know. But every single year I played Joseph, but there was always a different Mary. And it kind of, you know, messed me up a little bit because no one wanted to ever be Mary with me. I mean, every single year there was a different woman who was going to play my wife. And to be honest, it just got kind of discouraging. And uh, it was a terrible play. I mean, have you ever been to one of those before? Maybe it's at school or something else, but they kind of demonstrate, you know, the story of Christmas. And you're thinking, oh gosh, what else could I be doing right now? Anyone? You know, yeah. And I'm sure you've seen it too. You see, what's happened is we've taken the Christmas story and we've dramatized it. We put it to music, to dance. I saw something with puppets one time with Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus kind of came out underneath Mary. You talk about something being freaky. I mean, you know, and it happens. We've just kind of done that. And I think what we've done in the midst of that is we've tried to make the birth of Jesus sanitized and safe. But when you go behind the scenes, the birth of Jesus Christ is a very different thing. And so today, that's what I want us to do. I want us to get behind the scenes, and as we learn from a few characters in the Christmas story, we might actually learn how we feel about Jesus ourselves. So first of all, let's start with Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. The Bible says this, Now this is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, being a just man, decided to break the engagement quietly so as not to disgrace her publicly. Now let's just pause there for a second. Joseph was a good man. The scripture says that he was a just man. When he found out that Mary was pregnant, he wanted to do the right thing. I have a feeling he wanted to go punch out the guy who just got his fiance pregnant. You know, I mean, that's the reality when that happens to life. But instead of causing public humiliation and disgrace for Mary, he decided that he would kind of break off the engagement quietly. Because if word got out that Mary was pregnant, not by Joseph, but by someone else, in those days, Mary's teenage life could have been taken. More likely, her family would have shunned her. They would have walked away from her. And she would have been left with this big A on her forehead that she had committed adultery even before that, and she was pregnant, she was turned aside. And she would be ruined. In fact, I was reading this week that some people were stoned to death in the Jewish faith because of being pregnant and not being faithful to their fiancé. So because Joseph loved Mary so much, he didn't want to hurt her. And he broke off the, the engagement because of that type of love. Now I'll tell you what, that says a whole lot about Joseph. Because Joseph was a hundred percent man. And I'm sure when he first found out that, you know, his fiancée was pregnant, he was a little bit ticked. 
Mary, what did you do? You did that to me? I mean, who is this guy? If I find him, I'll kill him. His name's the Holy Spirit. Well, who's that? I can't see him. Oh, that makes it coincidence. You know, yeah, now I can't see him. So, the invisible man got you pregnant. Oh, okay. Nice. Nice, Mary. Nice. And then Joseph's story continues. As he considered this, meaning breaking off the engagement, he fell asleep and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid. You might want to circle that if you're uh, keeping notes. That's a key verse for you to remember your whole life. God says that more and more throughout Scripture than almost anything else. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary. For the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So during this dream, God comes to Joseph and he says, Do not be afraid. Now, let me just ask you a question. Why do you think God told Joseph, do not be afraid? It's not a trick question, folks. It's not rocket science. Why do you think he said, don't be afraid? Because he was afraid. Joseph was afraid. And some of you guys, you know, you're big and macho and you can pump more iron than, you know, I can and... You say, I'd never be afraid of anything. No, you'd be afraid. And this is why. I mean, just think about it. You're with the love of your life. You've got exciting hopes and dreams. And she comes to you and drops the bombshell, I'm pregnant. Then the story goes on. All of this happened to fulfill the Lord's message through His prophet. And the prophet that he's referring to is Isaiah. Isaiah was in the Old Testament. 700 years before this, he predicted it. He said, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded. He brought Mary home to be his wife, but she remained a virgin until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. You see, once Joseph knew that this was a God thing, he did the right thing. But even when you do the right thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that fear goes away. Right? Some of you right now are left with decisions in your life in which you know what the right thing is, but if you do that, there's some fear that goes along with it. And so Joseph needed these words, do not be afraid. Because sometimes when you want to do the right thing, it's a scary deal, isn't it? When you want to do the right thing, it's scary. Because what the world says is that, you know, doing the wrong thing is really what's accepted. It takes a lot more courage to do the right thing than it does to do the wrong thing every single time. And so Joseph does the right thing and he marries his pregnant fiance. In today's terms, we'd call it a shotgun wedding. In those days, it was a slingshot wedding. 
But behind this very calm Joseph that we see acted out on the stage with the long beard and the look down at Mary like, oh, how wonderful this all is, we just have a regular Joe. A good man whose life's in a tailspin. Things are turned upside down and the fear factor in his life is very great. I mean, just think about it. The future that he counted on wasn't this. Can you imagine his thoughts? I'm going to be the dad of the Savior of the world. How am I going to parent him? Will he accept my discipline? Can I spank him? Will he finish my lectures before I tell them to him? You know? There's a lot of mystery and fear when you actually get behind the scenes. So beside Joseph's name in your program, I just encourage you to write beside the word afraid. That's what Joseph felt. His feeling was he was afraid. Okay, let's go on to the next character, Mary. Jesus' mom. Now on the Christmas stage, Mary is beautiful and serene, almost angelic. She is the mother of the Savior of the world. But behind the scenes, this woman is living an impossible story. Mary was a teenaged, pregnant virgin. How do you explain that? You know, there's no PR spin that you can kind of put on to that one. You know, we've recently had this guy that was a man and or was a woman and a man and then had the baby and, you know, made like millions of dollars and is doing all this weird stuff. But, you know, we haven't had somebody go, yep, I'm a virgin and here it is, I had a baby. I mean, it's difficult to explain that because it's a difficult story. I mean, can you imagine behind the scenes, can you imagine Mary going to her mom for the very first time to talk to her about this? Just imagine what this must have been like. Mom... I've got something to tell you. I swear we only kissed, but I'm pregnant. And then Mary's mom looks at her and is kind of like, you know, what are you talking about? That must have been some kind of kiss. And then, you know, there's little sister in the background. Mom, I didn't know that you could get pregnant by kissing. Hey, brother, did you know that? And there's like chaos in the house now because of this situation. You see, folks... The birth of Jesus Christ was not a natural act. It was a supernatural act of God. And it's cool that God chose to begin to fulfill His plan with a teenager. This was such a privilege for Mary. And yet how difficult it must have been for her to actually explain it and to fill it. You see, the Mary on the stage always looks happy and perfect and everything's all together. But there's a lot different stuff going on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, you have a woman who's going through a pregnancy just like those of you women who have been pregnant before have experienced. Morning sickness, exhaustion, worry, concerns... And now you've got the Son of God kicking your stomach and you've got to be nice. And then to top this all off, the 
average Joe, your new husband says, Honey, I think we should go on a road trip. Let's go. The Bible says this. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was obviously pregnant by this time. Now today, we get census in the mail, or you can do it online. But in those days, when a census was taken, you had to go face to face to the place where you were born, to your birthplace. And so Joseph had to go to Bethlehem where Jesus would be born. Now the distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem is 70 miles. And most of you are like, oh, so what? 70 miles, man. I go to, you know, Indianapolis every single day. They didn't have cars back then, folks. There are only two forms of transportation. Either you walked or you went donkey speed or camel speed. And so it was like this long journey. In fact, most scholars tell us that it would have taken five to six days to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, depending on the terrain and the weather. Now, I want to just ask the women this, uh, especially those of you who have been pregnant, but anyone could answer it. What is the key word in the verse that's up on the screen? What's that key word that we just read? Anyone want to take a guess? It's the word obviously. Mary was obviously pregnant. I love that term. I wish all women who were pregnant were obviously pregnant. Anybody else in here as dumb as I am? You've ever gone up to a woman and go, Hey, how far along are you? Only to find out that they weren't pregnant? Anybody, please, anybody. Ah, thank you. A couple couple hands there, you know. I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the lone ranger on this, you know. I feel better. Thank you. So here's Mary, and she's obviously pregnant. And she's riding on a mule 70 miles, or some kind of animal, and I'm sure it wasn't a joyride. Then they get to Bethlehem, and in verse 6 it says this, And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the village inn. You know, behind the scenes, what we see is an uncomfortable, obviously pregnant teenager riding on some animal for 70 miles. And then when she gets to Bethlehem, there's no room for her to birth this baby, so she has to go to the barn where there are smelly animals around, leaving their droppings, and I see Mary as being uncomfortable. Now, I've only been to one birth in my life. That was the birth of my daughter, Jordan, although I hear that uh, in May I'll be at another birth, our second child. So those of you who don't know, we are expecting in May. So uh, thanks for the emails and all those things people have sent. Now, to know my wife Jennifer, though, in this whole situation, is to know a woman who is very loving and laid back. She's pretty calm and quiet, and she's one of the coolest people I know under pressure. But when we found out that Jordan was going to come 
three weeks beforehand, and the birth plan, isn't that a weird thing? Birth plan. Yeah, throw that out the window if you're pregnant, you know what I mean? The kid's going to come when the kid's going to come. And so we were ready for the birth plan on a certain day, and it didn't happen. And so Jennifer freaked out. And we were in freak mode for a few days, and then we picked the day that Jordan was going to come, and things got more collectively calm. So on May 9, 2007, we didn't get on a mule and travel five to six days to go have the baby. We got in our nice car, turned the air conditioning on, kind of warm that day, drove two miles to Ball Memorial Hospital, and there were nurses waiting on us with open arms, with a room ready for us. And we went in and we started listening to classical music. And Jennifer was doing emails because she wanted to get them done before she took off her maternity leave. And she's there, and they come up, and they say, hey, we want to give you this little drug called Pitocin. And I'm thinking, oh, that's cool. You know, she gets a little drug and shoots her up, you know, thinking that's going to really calm everything down. Didn't know what Pitocin was. It increases the contractions. And pretty soon she's on a birthing ball. She's doing, like, you know, kind of emails, and her water breaks in the midst of that, and the contractions start happening. And she's crying, and she's in pain, but she wasn't too bad. She's breathing through everything. I'm in the corner about ready to throw up, bawling my eyes out. And I finally go up to the doctor and I say, you give her something or give me something, but I can't do this anymore. And so they went to Jen. They gave her some ice chips. They gave me an epidural. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the way it was. No, actually, she got the epidural. But the pain went away, and Jen kind of relaxed. But for a moment, my mellow wife was extremely uncomfortable. And I've got the scars to prove it, if you want to come up. So I take all that into account, and here's Mary. The water's broken. It's time for action, but there's no hospital. There's no room in the inn. The Savior of the world's going to be born in a barn. Not exactly what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords should be brought into. Not exactly Mary's birth plan. Not exactly the dream that she was looking forward to. I've got to believe that Mary was very uncomfortable. And that's a word you can write beside Mary's name. That when we go behind the scenes, she was uncomfortable. Well, here's the last group of key characters. It's what I call the first visitors. You see, in one book, in Matthew, the very first book of the Bible, there was the wise men. But if we look at Luke's account, we have the shepherds. But what's, interestingly, uh, what's interesting about this is that both of these first visitors come and they respond in the exact same way. In Matthew, we read this. They, the wise men, entered the house where the child and mother, Mary, were, and they fell down before him and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's the response of the wise men? They worshipped Jesus. They're in the presence of him, in the midst of this infant Jesus, and these grown men bow on their knees and they worship him. Now when we flip to Luke, we have the shepherds. The Bible says this, The shepherds ran to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. Then the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherds' story were astonished 
the shepherds went back to their fields and flocks, glorifying and praising God. What's the response of the shepherds? They worshipped. And they take worship in a whole new direction. It's not just worshiping the baby Jesus right there, but they take it to the streets. They want anyone and everyone to know the astonishing thing that they just experienced. In fact, that's what it says, right? The other people were what? They were astonished. They were amazed. They were awestruck. You know, I was thinking about that this week. And I was thinking, you know, there are very few things in life that are amazing or that amaze me. I mean, think about it in your own life. When was the last time that you were amazed? You were astonished? I mean, in such a way in which you had to go and tell everyone around you what you had just experienced. You just couldn't stop. You had to tell everybody. The only thing that I could think about this week that was kind of slightly amazing to me is when you watch one of those shows like Extreme Makeover or one of those shows where you have a before and an after picture. You know, it's like you have Bubba who looks like a junkyard dog and weighs 500 pounds. That's the first picture. And then all of a sudden the second picture is Bubba looks like Brad Pitt and he weighs 96 pounds. You know? And that's what happens. And uh, that's amazing to me. Now, even though that's amazing, it doesn't mean that I want to go now and tell every single person everywhere, hey, look what happened to Bubba. We need to find Bubba. We need more people to look like Bubba. Let's all go tell Bubba. You know? No, it's not that astonishing to me. Or anybody know who this guy is? This is who? Jared before and Jared after. Now, I value Jared's story so much more. One, he did it on his own, but two, he's done this for a decade. He's, now, I'm sure he's in his contract it says, dude, you gain any weight and you, you, know, you lose millions. But he did it, you know? And there are stories that are like this that are amazing. And... The reality is, though, we don't go around and we don't start, oh, man, you got to hear about Jared and everybody should go to Subway, you know? See, these stories are amazing for our eyes, but they're not Savior awesome, folks. It's not like the God of the universe coming to planet Earth to forgive you of every single sin of your life and to let you know that He'll go to a cross in 33 years later and that all of the sins of the world would totally be forgiven. It's not that kind of amazing. And these shepherds, they get it. The wise men, they get it. And they take it to the streets. They couldn't keep it to themselves. And so the word you would write beside the first visitors is awestruck. They were awestruck. Now today I've given you three feelings that are in the Christmas story. Afraid, uncomfortable, and awestruck. Now what I'd like you to do now is, I want you to go behind the scenes. But not behind the scenes of the Christmas story. But behind the scenes of your own life. 
Go to that place in your life where no one else can see, the place of your soul. And I'd like you to ask the question, what does Jesus make you feel? When you focus on Jesus, how do you feel? I mean, when you get beyond the mask of your life, beyond the costumes, beyond the walls that you put up, and it's just you by yourself at the deepest soul level of your life, what's Jesus make you feel? What do you feel about it? If you would, I'd like you to pull out this little white piece of paper when you first came in. You can, everyone, just kind of pull it out, look at it for a second. And there are three feelings that are listed here. Afraid, uncomfortable, and awestruck. And what I'd like you to do is check, you know, one of these. And if one of these words doesn't describe the way that you feel about Jesus, you could write it in. But for some of you, it's going to be the word afraid. You have some fear about Jesus. You're afraid of what your life would look like if you totally aligned yourself with Him. If you totally focused on the teachings of Jesus and you lived a life like that, you're afraid. You're fearful of what your life would look like. Or for some of you, you're fearful of getting around a group of other Christian folks in a small group and really getting to know each other and try to understand more about this Jesus. And so for you, you know, what best describes you, you just check that. You'd say, you know what, we're not... You know, put names on this. You just check it and say, hey, that's me. Maybe some of you feel uncomfortable. I mean, let's just admit it. You're not fearful. You're not afraid of aligning yourself with Jesus Christ and His teachings. You just don't want to be uncomfortable doing it. I mean, you like your lifestyle. You like to do what you want, when you want, where you want, treat people however you want. You don't want to make any changes in that. And Jesus will call for a change, and so that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, you like the God thing. You like coming to here on church, or coming to the jar to church. You like, you know, grace. You like forgiveness. You like all the benefits. But you're like, don't mess with my life, though. I mean, don't ask me to read the Bible or pray or give myself freely to the people around me. I mean, that... That makes me uncomfortable. I'm too busy to do that. So you might say, you know what? That's me. Or maybe you're awestruck. And that's the feeling that defines you. The name of Jesus Christ kind of rocks your world. You want to serve Him passionately. You live a life in which you try to give compassion to the people around you. You want your life to make a difference, not for yourself, but for His honor. You're not perfect, but Jesus, for the most part, really guides your life and your thinking, and you want other people to know about Him. And if none of those, you know, feel, kind of describe you, just write it right beside it. You can just write whatever that feeling is. And there's a box in the back. We just ask you to drop these in. No one will know. But we want to know, what, what do we feel? What, what do people here today at the jar fill. Now, regardless of what you've circled or you wrote in, as we start the Christmas season, 
This is what I want every single one of you to know. You are not alone. You're not alone. If you're afraid, you're not alone. If you're awestruck, you're not alone. If you're uncomfortable, you're not alone. What I want you to hear is that no matter who you are or what you feel, you are not alone. You're not alone in this church, and you're not alone with God. The person sitting beside you, they don't know what's going on behind the scenes of your life. They don't, but God knows. He sees behind the scenes. And if you forget every single thing that I said today, I want you to remember this. God knows what you're feeling, and Jesus is the answer. God knows what you're feeling, and Jesus is the answer. There's a bumper sticker up there that says, uh, Jesus is the answer. I got a confession to make. When I was uh, in seminary, getting my Masters of Divinity. Did you know I'm a Master of Divine Things? And I kind of walked around seminary thinking that, that I knew so much. And when I saw people that would have this bumper sticker on their car, I just make fun of. Because I thought, you know, how simple can that be? I was arrogant. I thought I had all the answers and people are just putting that on their bumper. You know what I was? I was a small little Christian punk. You know what I've learned over time? The older I get, the more I hang out with the one who knows me best and loves me most, that Jesus is the answer. He's the answer for everything. He's the answer for your problems, your stresses, your hurts, your relationships. He's the answer. He's not a answer. He's the answer. He's the answer to what you're feeling, what you're going through. He just, he's the answer. And this, this week, I really want to challenge you. In your teaching outline, there's four things there that I want to challenge you to do. One of them you already did. You circled one of those three things. And I want you to clarify. Why, why does that make you feel that way? If you're afraid, if you're awestruck, if you're uncomfortable... Why is that? And you can journey through the Christmas story. There's nothing you can do that in which God's going to affect your life more than if you read the Bible this Christmas season. You say, I'm going to get through the Christmas story. Nothing will do that more. So if you haven't filled out that card, do that. You can drop it in the box. And finally, just kind of consider inviting someone else, a friend, to the jar next Sunday. You know, people are most open to God-like things during this time of year almost as much as any time during the year. And I'll kind of, next week when we get to part two, I'll make sure they don't feel alone, that they are caught up. You know, folks, I don't know what you're feeling. And I don't know what you're going through. But God does. And he says, Jesus 
is the answer. Because Jesus is our Messiah. He is our Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. That God is with us. He never walks away. And he never lets you go. Let's kind of stand and we'll sing that together. Our Emmanuel, our God who's with us.
little card that you had, if you could uh, just put it in the box when you leave today. Know that you're loved in this place. If you want prayer for anything, come on up. Have a great week. Thanks.